And all this stuff, like playing sports, all this stuff hurts. And you start to realize, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like you know, with a cane yet, but you start to realize the fragility of life, right? That there is not an invincibility here. And what I'm saying here is that even in death and, the, the, and tomorrow, the promise of eternal life deals with that too. It allows us to recognize that our lives on this earth matter. They're significant. But they are in the context of a much larger economy of God in heaven. This is why, to bring it all home, Jesus is called our Prince of Peace in the Bible. I've mentioned this every week. Your understanding of eternity is one of the reasons you can worship Jesus as the Prince of Peace. His gift of eternal life in part means we no longer have to be anxious or troubled about anything. That doesn't mean we won't be anxious or troubled. It just means we have to combat the reality of that falsehood. When it feels like we, we are anxious and troubled, we have to remember that Jesus has said we don't need to be troubled. That's what we talked about two weeks ago, right? He's with us. Whether it is in life or death, those who receive the gift of Jesus' grace, delivered through the manger and certainly fulfilled on the cross, they live forever. That's what Jesus says. Grace delivered through the manger now causes us to live forever. It's the beginning of the process. And so Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, they declare to the world that there is no circumstance in life or the eventual reality of death. These things hold no power over Jesus. And they certainly now, because of our, our relationship with Jesus, they no longer hold power over those who are in Jesus. The idea of an eternity with Jesus matters. It's important. And, and I don't want you to miss this in this season. The manger is the beginning of a, of a plan one that, I love how Ephesians talks about this. It's like in the fullness of time, it says, God looked at the whole world, past, present, and future, and he said, this is the time. This is the time Jesus comes. It's gonna, the maximum amount of people will come to know my grace when I send my son to the earth now. And that is what we celebrate. It was not coincidental. God, in his infinite wisdom, said that time, some 2,000 years ago, that time mattered then, and it matters for us today. This idea of an eternity with Jesus in heaven is an awesome promise of peace, an awesome one. But I'm not naive to the fact that for some of us, this might feel distant today. For a great many people, maybe not even in this room, I don't, I'm not assuming where you're at, but I guarantee you, either in you right now, if you're this person, or somebody in your life, right now there are people who if you were to offer this to them and say, listen, I want to tell you about this, this eternal promise God has given you in Jesus, they would say, I can't even think about tomorrow or, or my death because I'm just so anxious about today. They're so short-sighted in life right now that they can't, they can't even experience the promise. We're trying to give them a hope for tomorrow, and they're drowning in today. So I, what I want to say to you is that if this is you or somebody you will meet with this week, Jesus' promise of peace has something to say to both you and them. And if you want to know what it is, it's this. The gift of eternal life that our Prince of Peace offers to us for the next life also promises to, to enrich the quality of life we have right now. It's kind of like a past, present, future promise. The hope of eternity really can dictate peace and joy today. In fact, we'll, we'll very uh, briefly touch on this in the back end of this talk. But John tells us all these things have been written, much like when we started the book of Philippians, where joy is a prevalent theme. He says all these things have been written so that you would know the joy of Jesus. So this isn't just about a tomorrow thing. Eternal life is a today thing. Eternity begins the moment we're in Jesus, at least in God's economy. This is why John says Jesus offers you much more than just eternal life. This is, I think, where the milk-meat thing has to be checked. Sometimes we see the gift of eternity from Jesus as, as something he does. And it is certainly something he does. It is certainly something he gives us. But it's much deeper than just that. 
the way Jesus accomplishes eternity in us is by not just giving us the gift, by recognizing he, he gives us himself in the gift. That is the gift. The proximity we have to Jesus, the relationship we have to Jesus, is what shapes the fact that we can have an eternity now with our Father in heaven. So you don't just get stuff from God. I say that all the time. You actually get God. And that is, those are two different faiths. The person who says, I love God because I get stuff from him, we're going to talk about why this is a problem in a minute. But the bottom line is that in life, you don't always get stuff. You don't always get what you want. And when, when, if you are that person, you will say, God doesn't love me because I'm not getting. But if you are the person who says, I, I love God, and I recognize that through Jesus, God says, I get God. You get me. The greatest gift is me. That is a different faith. One is rooted in, in the fact that Jesus never leaves you or forsakes you. The gift is always there no matter what the circumstance says. The other is rooted in God giving you something, dispensing something to you. And that comes and goes. There is both valley and mountaintop in that, right? So if we think that, if we think in that second category, then we are likely to have a very tumultuous existence in God and on this earth. Here's why this matters for, for your quality of life in Christ. Today it is very common um, for Christians, and this is what I mean by the milk and the meat analogy, even though they would say they never believe this, they would never say this, but practically the way they live their lives says this. They believe, like if you were to ask somebody, is, like, is it Jesus alone? I'm talking for those of you in Jesus. Can you do anything to earn God? No. No, it's just the grace of Jesus, right? It's the foundation of which the Reformation was built, the stream of faith we're in. Jesus alone. They would say, I believe that. But then they often lack peace in their life because in a very subversive way, even though they know God unconditionally gives them love, they, they live as if they have to continually earn that. And that is actually a way to ruin your faith. Believing you can earn Jesus' gift of life, his eternal life, it leads you to one of two places always, and they're never places of health. Both rob you of Jesus' peace. I'll be brief here, but I want to share them. The first is a place of pride and self-arrogance. When, when you kind of take Jesus out of the manger and stick yourself in it, or you pull Jesus off the cross and stick yourself on it, step one is you will probably, if you persist in this area, you will get to a place where pride and self-arrogance dictate who you are because think about it you've just become god in the faith and this is because when a person believes god loves them because of what they do or what he get what they get from them they will directly correlate god's acceptance of them with their actions and life circumstances and, and every time i talk about this uh, this is not a, the subject of our talk today but i want to be clear there are expectations god has of our life there are things he wants us to be doing this is not saying like i'm not encouraging christian irresponsibility what I'm saying here, though, is that the foundation of how we grow in our responsibility towards God cannot be rooted in our own strength. It's rooted in the reliance upon God's grace in, in Jesus. So if we get to this place when a, where a person believes God loves them because of what they do, they will directly correlate God's acceptance of them with actions and life circumstances. And this essentially puts the onus of salvation back on our shoulders, on your shoulders. And what happens is, is when, when you succeed in life or when things are good, you'll be okay. You'll have peace. In your mind, you have constructed a scale of equality, and you look at life like this in this category. You say, I do this, I'm good to my wife, I love my kids, um, I tithe, I hold down a good job, I should, I do all this, and because of this, my life should look like this. Life should be equal and good. It's essentially like Eastern karma is what it is. We say that. In the scale of life, we feel good about ourselves because we have peace for a season, because you all know uh, there are times in life when the economy of that scale is incongruent. 
And so what happens is, is when, when we see equality in the scale, we say, I do good and I get good. And we can tend to get a little bit puffed up in that. And left to its extreme vices, you get puffed up and start looking down on people in that. The humility of the manger now becomes arrogance and humanity, and that's a problem. Because we don't think people can live up to the scale we're on. So this person might actually have a temporal peace in their heart, but it's not the kind of peace Jesus promises us in the Christmas story. We will never be able to fully rest in Jesus' gift of life because over time, this person subversively and then most likely, it's like pulling the pin on a hand grenade, over time they start to believe God's love for them is built on some cosmic reward system. If you condition your heart to believe that, you will eventually believe God loves me because of what I do. When the manger says God loves you, period. So consequently, the first time life gets tough, when the scale gets out of order, or the reward doesn't seem equal to what we're doing, we lose peace. We begin to question who God is. All of these things we talk about today in the comfort of the room, they go out the window. We say, God promised me love and peace, and I've done everything he said, and I don't feel love or peace right now. And that begins to explain why for many of us we live in these states of anxiety. We start to see peace from different... We don't see peace as the unassailable characteristic Jesus puts in our heart. We see it as a a limited commodity that we have to purchase with our own sweat and blood. And there is a limited life on a commodity. The second place is a place of self-despair. This is the person who goes the other way. Um, they, you can almost think of it like this. This is like the exact opposite, the antithesis to this first category. This is a person who thinks God just can't love me. And that is usually an attitude that has expressed itself with other relationships. People feel like they are unlovable. Because you can't live up to God's expectations or the expectations of others. And in this person's world, they don't even think there's a scale. Like the proud person says there's a scale and I can weigh evenly on it. This person is so, they essentially punish themselves so deeply that they don't feel that there's even a scale. God doesn't even care about them enough to, to make anything happen for them. They think God's love is out there maybe, but they feel they're too broken or too far from God to receive it. And I hear this in two ways a lot. I hear it in the... In the, the sophisticated way, like the, the atheistic camps today will say things like, well, God's love is not real. That's not even a thing. That's one way of saying that. But I also hear it in, in more subtle ways where I've even heard, like, in, in my family, that none of the men, no, nobody is a Christian, at least in my, my family going backwards. But a lot of the men in the family will say in very puffed up ways, like, uh, God could never, I'd like shake the foundations of a church if I came in. This is like a very arrogant way, and I've told this to them, that's why I'm sharing it confidently with you. This is a very arrogant way of saying this. There's, there's a bit of a recognition of who I am is not worthy of who God is. And there actually is truth in that, right? But that truth changes when you recognize this. You say, you know what? I'm actually not worthy of you, Jesus. But because of you, Jesus, you make me worthy. And there's a beautiful tension, like a borderline emotional paradox in that. That is maturity. Not good enough, but totally good enough. I'm happy. I'm going to Red Robin today. Singing Christmas to carols, right? What happens here is this person left unchecked without truth, they start to lead a life of self, self-imposed penance. They live a, a life of, con, it's a constant state of not being good enough. They deny themselves the ability to rest in the truth. That God says, I, I love this. You can take this for what it's worth. You cannot run my grace, right? I mean, if you think about this, the person who says, I'm too far from you or I'm too broken, what God says, and, and there's kind of Old Testament you know, poetry, it doesn't say it exactly like this. This is my translation of it, especially in the book of Jonah, that God's, God is a long-suffering God, that God, God's arms of grace are very long. They can always meet you where you are at. Like, you, we sometimes think God is, like, short-armed. And, like, where you are, he's like, nope, can't do that. But the truth is that that's not how God is. God is long-armed, and he can actually reach you and touch you where you are. And that touch is the beginning of bringing you back to where you need to be. So listen, if you're in one of these categories this morning, hear me out. 
the gift of life and peace that God offers us in the manger, it isn't based on what you can do or what you can't do for God. This is a, this is a misunderstanding of the manger. God, in the fullness of time, didn't look down and say, well, Anthony can do this now, so I'm going to send Jesus. That's not what he did. He said, this is the time for me to do this for the world. Here comes my son. Different onus of where the weight of this goes on. It's based on, it's not based on, on, on what you think you have to do. It's based on what God has already done for you in Jesus and what God will do for you in Jesus. And so this means if you want to experience the gift of eternal life, it just can't just be some, you know, elementary idea that you read one day in John 3.16 and then move on from. If you want that to lead to peace in your heart, you have to stop trying to figure out what to do to make God love you. And you have to rest in the truth that, that both the manger and the cross and the, and the life of Jesus in the middle, they declare that God has already loved you. And this is the great irony in the Christmas message. The Christmas message proclaims this irony uh, when it comes to experiencing peace in this life. It's a contrarian wisdom. And that's why I think so many people have a hard time experiencing it. If you want to experience God's gift of life and peace, you have to stop trying to earn it, and you have to start resting and trusting in Jesus for it. Contrarian wisdom. We live in a world that, that values the scale, right? That says, I work hard my whole life, and I retire well. Or, I work hard in my job, and I get promotions. Or, I raise my kids solidly, and they grow up to be good. That's the scale. And sometimes the scale works. But a lot of times the scale doesn't. So if we're treating... If the downstream in our lives is scale-oriented or self-despair-oriented, it is a direct reflection on, on our... It's an inability for us to understand who God is and how he loves us. However, when you receive and deeply believe in the wonderful gift of life that Jesus alone promises you, you get a freedom. That's what comes with it. The pressure cooker of life is kind of slowly... It's depressurized because you no longer believe you have to prove your worth to God to experience his grace and peace. And you no longer have to believe you have to martyr yourself to get God to love you. And what likely starts to happen is you start to really experience who God is and you start to become more like him in very healthy ways. Understanding life in Christ like this, it gives us a compass. It's a spiritual compass that guides us in the way we understand who we are before God. Foundational. You don't get to be something for God until you understand who you are in God. And that's what gives you a more accurate picture of the way God sees you and how, how, you, how you treat other people and how other people are allowed to relate to you. You know, if you say I'm unlovable, that means you don't think you are lovable by your Father in Heaven. And that is going to perpetuate itself in your relationships. So this leads me to the second thing I want to talk to you about today. Um, eternal life is not just like an Easter sermon. It's an everyday sermon. And I hope you realize the magnitude of that simple statement. It's a simple statement with profound implication. But it's not the only gift that Jesus gives us in this passage. And this leads me to the second thing I want to talk to you about today. The second peace gift the manger gives us is is actually going to corroborate what I just said. I just said that Jesus doesn't just give you a gift of life. In Jesus, God gives us the gift of eternal fellowship to experience his peace. He gives us life in him so that we can be in him, so that we can actually have genuine relationship with him. 1 John 1, 3-4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is an invitation to be in Jesus. So verse 3 teaches us something amazing about the kind of relationship the coming of Christ means we can have with God. And you New Testament scholars will know what I'm about to say. In this passage, the Greek word used for fellowship is koinonia. And in general, it means it's, it's to share a common enjoyment of a particular gift or experience. It means there's something that binds us together, okay? 
we share a gift that, that unites us. In this case, we're obviously talking about the grace of God through the blessings of Jesus. And, and what this means is that because of the manger, every Christian is now given the opportunity to experience this type of fellowship. When we think about loving God, it, we, there, is, there is no person on earth that is able to uh, offer us this kind of relationship that Jesus gives us through the manger. This writing in 1 John and the ones we've talked about in the Gospel of John, they refer to an unprecedented way that Christ's coming allows us to personally know and experience God's love and peace. With the disciples over the past two weeks in the upper room, we've looked at how the promise of peace shapes peace in a troubled time. Here, we go right to the root. It's this, it's this amazing thing that Jesus says through the table, right, through the understanding of Advent, we now can know we can have fellowship with God. We can have a I'll just use modern evangelical terms. We can have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it's been called for the last 20 years. And there's something really good about the emphasis of that, but there's also a problem with that. In modern Christianity, the idea of having a personal relationship with God is so common that it's almost lost the edge of awe and reverence it so rightly deserves. We talk about this like, you know, the relationship I have with the person I go out to eat with. And in a sense, that's true. God does offer himself in that that very relational way, that colloquial colloquial way. But, but this concept here, I want to radicalize it a little bit today. I want you to understand how far from the common man's understanding of God it was for Jesus to come to earth and for John to tell us this is the way we can now know God. This is a colloquial reference in the modern church, but it is anything but colloquial in the early church. And I think it would do us well to get back to some of that reverence in, space, in certain zones in our lives. So think about this. In the Old Testament, God is accessible. God is knowable. But it is not like it is with us today. No one, I mean, if you have read Jewish history, and especially the Old Testament, if people were just to look upon God, like some of them just died. This famous story with Moses, you know, God hides him, sticks him between a rock. He sees a glimpse of him and he's glowing for a couple of days. In the temple, the way we related to God, the temple is now Jesus. We go to God through Jesus. In the Old Testament, to go to God, you went through the, the priesthood of the temple. And when people went in to mediate the temple, they had to tie bells on their ankles. This is in the Bible. And ropes on them. Because if they went into the temple and got before God with unconfessed sin, they were dead. They would just die. There was no place for that unrepentant posture. Think about this today. What if I were to tell you, I want you to get your kids involved in the kids' ministry. But you need to know you need to bring a rope and bells. Because if they go in there with unconfessed sin, you will never see them again. Right? None of you would enroll your children in the kids' ministry. Right? If that was the reality of what happened here, you would not be showing up. Right? So if ever we get back into Old Testament worldviews and we're handing out bells and ropes here, you should go be a Mormon or something. I'm just telling you right now. It's a bad gig. Right? But th- think about this. This is how people see God. They love him and they care him and he's knowable. But up until the manger, this is how people see him. Deep sense of reverence and awe. So you can imagine how shocking it must have been to people when they hear the kinds of things John writes about here. When, God, when John says God becomes a man like, uh, excuse me, Jesus becomes a man like God. Not only has he become a man, but we have seen him with our own eyes. We have touched him with our hands. We have experienced him in the depths of our heart. His love, life, and peace no longer mediated through a temple. You can just put your hand on the shoulder of Christ. And in today's world, you can put your hand and the hand of the Holy Spirit is on you. You are in constant contact with God. And you are alive and thriving because of it. This is revolutionary stuff. And it marks an unprecedented way that God reveals himself to the world. 
the full presence, the invitation John gives us. Come be with my Father. Come be with God. Come be with Jesus the Son. And come be with the Holy Spirit. That's the point the Bible is making here, driving home here. That's the point of Christmas. The gift that Jesus offers us gives us this chance to experience a very special kind of relationship with God. And according to John, it is the very same kind of love that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally shared with each other. Their fellowship, their koinonia, their common experience is now offered to you and me. That is awesome. And this is what Christmas is about. It's about love and relationship. It's about the opportunity that God gives humanity to experience the most perfect love and peace the world has ever known. It's about God inviting us into this experience with him of knowing the, the peace of eternity, of knowing the promise of hope and joy in today. It is an infinite love shared in Jesus. And it is based on the kind of love that, the, that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for each other. It is a love that if you go through the scripture, it is selfless and devoted. A love that, is, that longs to be in each other's presence. It's a perfect love based on mutual trust and respect. It's a love rooted in infidelity, peace, and hope. It's a covenantal love. They're there, period. The gift of Christmas is that we've been invited to participate in the experience like this. The purest form of loving fellowship the world has ever known. The promise of the manger says, now I offer it to you. This is an amazing promise to dwell upon if you're already in Jesus. It's another evidence of eternal life. You don't just get that and move away from it. You get that and get that more deeply for the rest of your days. And it is also one that I will say, it needs to be shared with people. That's going to be a big emphasis for the new year. Is, is asking if when we come in here and celebrate these rhythms of grace and truth and love, we have to ask ourselves, are we sharing these same rhythms of grace, truth, and love with the people in our lives who are far from God or maybe do feel like they're too broken to be loved by anybody? This is an amazing opportunity. It's a rich spiritual experience that Jesus offers us. It's a peace that he offers us. And I will tell you that this is being sought after in our world today. Unfortunately, it's being sought after by a great many people who seek it in lesser gods, lowercase g, that are far less personal. This is kind of how we'll wrap up. I want you to take, for example, this is a, um, I have a lot of stories of, of talking to people about Jesus, both modern and, and past. But the one I'm going to share with you is what happens when you get to the back end of a story with somebody. When you get to the place where there's relational capital to share Christ, to say, listen, this is why I believe what I believe. This is why I am who I am. Years ago, I shared Christ with a girl. Who, re, who refused to receive the gift of life in Jesus. Um, she was quintessentially a spiritualist, like capital S. And uh, she did not buy anything that I shared with her because she felt that the Christian faith was a bit far-fetched. And she went on to tell me, and this goes, this kind of connects with most of what I say when we talk about faith. Everybody in this world has faith in something. If you get to know them enough, you'll find out what it is. Okay? It's not always something religious, but sometimes it's faith in self, faith in a system, faith in a government, faith in whatever. They have faith in something. Okay? So here, as this person, as I asked them, well, then what do you believe in? Like, what, what makes your clock tick? She goes on to tell me that she has faith, but it revolves around listening to a set of crystals, okay? which based on colors and placement, they have the ability to speak to her life and guide her. Now, I, I really want to laugh in this moment, and, and I mean that. I had to check myself because I'm thinking, like, so the concept of God is crazy, but, like, you believe in green crystals, like the stuff that Superman, like, made, made him weak. That's the kind of stuff that is, you know, talking to her. And so I, I did not go that route, the road of kind of sarcasm, because I felt like on the scale of validity, Christianity was a little bit heavier that day. But that's not, that's not going to speak to a person's heart. That's just going to make them angry. I just kind of tried to point out the irony in this, that while there was an absolute rejection of the idea that a person could know a God, could actually know a person, like know, know the Father in heaven, like Jesus says, 
Um, she clearly believes that it's possible to have a personal relationship with a set of crystals. Like, and that's what's now dictating her life. And I was really grieved that day because I remember thinking she was selling herself short. This is what's going on in my head. She's experiencing, she's, she's essentially pursuing a promise God offers the world in a, in a, in a lesser form of fullness. What God offers her, she chooses crystals. And we've all got our version of a crystal. For the non-believer, it's, it's probably a very large one. But for those of us in Jesus, there are days when we choose the crystals, whatever that it might be in our life, over the promise of Jesus. There are places where we unbelieve what we say we have believed. And so all the research today tells us, you would not be here today if what I'm going to say is not true. All the research today tells us that we live in a world where people are very open to the idea of, of, the, of spirituality. Christianity is a, is a faith that is rooted in the power and of the Holy Spirit. And there are people in our world looking for what the Christmas story shares. What they seek it in, though, is a different story. I'm not purporting they're all looking for Jesus. I'm just saying they're looking for something like Jesus, most people. But what they seek is not. Even the person who says they are very far from faith, the atheistic tendency, what happens there is there is an ultimate truth agent in that person's life. It's themselves, usually. They take the role of God and they deem all that is right and wrong by what they feel is right and wrong. It's essentially, it is a God complex. It's just, it's just expressed in a different crystal. Okay? Everybody's got faith in something. And this is where, just like John says in this passage, we have to recognize there's, there's very, very uh, powerful emotive language used here. It's about seeing, sensing, touching, and feeling Jesus. And what I'm saying here is that, that we need to be committed to that. We don't need to have some abstract, ambiguous understanding of who God is. We need to be able to cling to God like if you have children, like the way you hold your kid. There is a spiritual equivalent to that with God the Father. That is the narrative of Christmas. That is the message we proclaim over these last weeks. It is what we will talk about Christmas Eve. And I want to challenge you guys to recognize this is a message that you need to experience and share with others. Because Christmas means God came after you. That's what it means. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't have anybody to have Christmas supper with. You should let us know that. We'll help figure that out this week. But you need to know that even if nobody pursues you on this earth, God goes to incredible lengths to get close to you. He, gets, he goes through incredible lengths to be near to you, to bring peace to you. And my question to you this morning as we close is, do you believe that? Are you in awe of that gift? I hope so, because when you are, you'll be able to receive the last gift that Jesus gives us here in verse 4. These things are written, John says, so that your joy would be complete. That the peace, the hope, the love of God in heaven that abounds in infinite perfection would be in your heart today. All of the access you have to Jesus is so that you would have the peace of God in your heart, the joy of God in your heart today. So look, bikes, electronics, video games, clothing, whatever you're asking for, they're great gifts, but they're not the greatest gift. This is the greatest gift of Christmas, and it can only be found in Jesus and the fellowship that God offers you through him. So live in that truth today. The teaching reminds us Jesus' love preexisted in the world. It always was. Jesus' love created the world. And when we sinned, Jesus' love took action and came into the world. It was, is, and will always be. And through his birth, the pointy end of the spear begins to teach the world this, show the world this. Through his birth, God shows us we are still objects of affection in this world. No matter how far we are from him, his coming says, I care for you. And it is through his death that that, that verbal promise that, that the young Jesus who becomes the man Jesus makes throughout his whole life is concretely solidified. If you have doubts about the origin of the manger, it ends up on the promise fulfilled on the cross. Jesus' love knows no bounds for us. So this morning, I want to encourage you to experience this for the first time or to experience it in a more deep way. If you've never believed in the love of Jesus, ask yourself why. Or if you've come to the place today where you said, I got that in Sunday school in fifth grade, 
and I just haven't really thought about it since then, start rethinking about that today and watch what happens over these next weeks. Receive the gift of peace today for the first time or receive it in a deeper way. Believe in Christ. And I'll leave you with this verse. It's kind of been a, it's been a touch point uh, throughout these three weeks and will be Christmas Eve because of the very last statement it says. Isaiah 9, 6, it'll be behind me. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophecy of the coming of the Son of God, Prince of Peace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, I know it's not over yet, but this season's probably like the rest of our holiday seasons. They are somewhat of a blur. But I pray that in the blur that will likely get blurrier this week as many of us scatter to the four corners of this country and we have folks scattering in from the four corners of this country. This is a season where for the next couple of weeks, many of us will probably not see each other for a while. But I do pray that no matter where we go, the reality of what we've talked about today would be what is in our hearts. Our common experience in Jesus is something we can share even when we are, when we are not in the same room together. But no matter where we go, the goodness and the grace of your son Jesus is in us. And I pray, Lord, that that, that would truly be the gift we most appreciate this, this Christmas. And I pray, Lord, that that gift would be the thing we most deeply reflect on in these next moments we have in response time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all of this this morning. Amen. So it's going to be a crazy busy week, I'm sure. Just want to give you guys a couple of quick minutes to, to pray and to process, to meditate about what we've spoken about this morning. The band's going to share a song with you here in a moment. And use this as a reflection point to think about two things. Connecting your life to Jesus and giving your life back to him. So by connecting, I mean if, if you're here today, there are connection cards in your seat. If you're looking for a church, if you have questions about the Christian faith, if you are a Christian and have more questions about the Christian faith, whatever it is, no matter where you are, if there is a way you are looking to connect, whether that is to a church family or Jesus for the first time, um, let us know that on those connection cards. I promise you, we will privately and discreetly follow up with you this week to help you figure out the place God is leading to you. Connect. The second thing I want to say, and this is going to be more for those of you who are partners here, who are folks who are connected and serving here, not limited to you, but certainly focused to you, is to ask yourself whether or not you are giving your life back to Jesus. Is your connection to Christ truly affirmed in the giving of yourself to Jesus? This is the place where I ask you to consider, are you serving God in this room? Are you serving God in our ministries? Are you serving God in his mission outside of this place? Are you giving your life back to him? I also want to ask you guys as we wrap up this year to consider what you give regarding tithes and offerings. This will be the last time we meet corporately as a body here. So for those of us that are gospel partners, we also have a responsibility to give and support the mission and ministry of Jesus' church here. Give sacrificially and generously. If you're visiting, we simply ask that you do as the Lord leads. But if you are visiting, we also ask you to consider the steps that Jesus puts before your life, whatever they might be. And this time you have now is given to you to space that out and to process it. So you can take those connection cards and your gifts. You can place them in these towers as we exit after our time and the benediction. Focus now on the voice of God. Listen to the quietness that he will speak to you through what we will sing and celebrate here now.